Greetings, everyone. I'm Paul Pepys, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. Welcome to this, the fifth and final public lecture in the OHC's annual named lectureship series on the theme of belonging. We've invited the speakers in our belonging series to apply their diverse perspectives, experiences, and expertise to our theme in hopes of fostering productive conversations about what it means to belong, who decides who belongs, and how to create more inclusive systems for everyone. Giving our, given our focus on the promise and problem of belonging, I want first to give our customary land acknowledgement. The University of Oregon is located on Kalapuya Ilahi, the traditional indigenous homeland of the Kalapuya people. Following treaties between 1851 and 1855, Kalapuya people were dispossessed of their indigenous homeland by the United States government and forcibly removed to the Coast Reservation in Western Oregon. Today, Kalapuya descendants are primarily citizens of the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde and the Confederated Tribes of Siletz Indians, and they continue to make important contributions to their communities, to the U of O, to Oregon, and to the world. Many thanks also to our ASL interpreters, Mike Rose and Andrew Weaver, and thanks to our generous donors. If you want to join them in supporting the OHC and our public and research programs, visit our website, ohc.uoregon.edu. I'm now delighted to introduce our speaker, Brittany Wilson, Associate Professor of Law and Director of the Civil Rights and Disability Justice Clinic at New York Law School. Prior to her current position, Professor Wilson served as a staff attorney at the National Center for Law and Economic Justice, a Bertha Justice Fellow at the Center for Constitutional Rights, and a Marvin M. Karpatkin Fellow in, racial just, in the Racial Justice Program at the American Civil Liberties Union. Born with cerebral palsy, Professor Wilson has written and spoken extensively about disability and the intersection of race and disability for various media outlets, including The Nation, Long Reads, This American Life, NPR, PBS, NewsHour, Color Lines, and The Huffington Post. Professor Wilson has also testified about issues facing people with disabilities both before local and international governing bodies, including the New York City Council and the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. An accomplished creative writer and artist as well, Wilson has published and performed short stories, creative nonfiction essays, and poetry, including on the HBO series, Brave New Voices. Brittany Wilson will speak to us on the topic, Down for the Cause, Grace, Space, and Belonging in Social Movements. Please join me in welcoming Brittany Wilson. Good evening, everyone. Thank you all so much for coming out. Um, in the spirit of access, I'm gonna begin by providing a visual description of myself. So I'm a black woman wearing my hair in two-strand twists. I'm wearing a burgundy suit with a white blouse and black and gold rimmed glasses. I'm also gonna try to speak slowly, uh, but I'm a native New Yorker, so I can promise you that will be a bit of a difficult task. I'm also gonna try to remember to explain any acronyms before I use them and to spell any important names or items with which you might be unfamiliar. My preferred pronouns are she, her. Um, also, in the spirit of access, I'm gonna tell you all that I am from the East Coast, and so my body right now is saying, it's almost nine o'clock at night, so <laughs> please bear with me as I, as I power through. Um, and I'd like to extend my own thank yous to Gina Turner for the invitation to speak at this year's SEDIC lecture. I'd also like to thank Melissa Gustafson, Paul Pepys, 
Peg Gerhardt and the staff of the Oregon Humanities Center for their assistance in making my visit here possible, as well as professors Ra Raul Li Livanos, whose class I visited earlier. I see some of the students here. Thank you all for coming. Julius McGee, Betsy Wheeler, Brian Trapp, and all the faculty and staff that I met today. I hope I didn't leave anyone out. Um, across the various schools at the University of Oregon. Really enjoyed meeting with you all. And I'm going to be completely honest with you. Um, when I heard that the theme of today's lecture was belonging, I wasn't exactly sure I would have anything useful to contribute. Um, of course, I understand that belonging is a broad topic and it's open to interpretation. The lecture description further explained that the theme constituted a universal human need to have cohesive bonds and connections with people and places. But the notion of belonging itself initially struck me as a sentimental form of external validation seeking rooted in the very systems and structures that I like to think my work aims to challenge. It's also rooted in a sentiment that I've trained myself personally to reject a long time ago as a black disabled woman, especially susceptible to the whims of socially constructed standards of acceptance. So the belonging theme bothered me because it conflicted with the kind of unspoken personal life mantra that I had built up over time, which is basically, I don't need you to accept me. Who are you? <laughs> I'm not willing to cede that type of power to anyone. I accept me and I'm here no matter what. So similarly, I told myself, I don't litigate cases about belonging. Of course, I recognize how my work as a civil rights attorney and now as a clinical law professor who teaches other students to be attorneys by working on cases might be categorized as a constant grappling with legal and societal barriers to others' rights to and sense of belonging. I also understand how my work uh, writing about these issues could be classified as issues of belonging. But I don't, work, I don't view the work that my students and I do as asking the court to let our clients into the club of systems predicated on hierarchy and social oppression. I also don't see it as beseeching governing or otherwise powerful entities to see or honor our clients' humanity. I see our work as pushing back against the very notion that you need to belong in order to live or to thrive. I see it as helping members of marginalized groups to navigate systems that we recognize as oppressive, but that we're nevertheless presently unable to avoid because they constitute the fabric of our very society. I'm also not someone who's gonna try to convince you that people with disabilities are just like everyone else, or that we're capable of doing anything we put our minds to. If only you just accept us, uh, you know, give us the proper accommodations and opportunity. Yes, people with disabilities need or might need accommodations. Yes, people with disabilities should be given opportunities. However, the idea that we're just like everyone else and can do anything anyone else can do is also a well-intentioned well but ableist one that I also think is rooted in the desire to prove that people with disabilities belong in so-called mainstream or integrated society or even in the world. It's an idea that relies on societal ideas about value and self-worth 
that are dependent on so-called productivity or accomplishment. These are ideas that often harm many people with disabilities by forcing us to downplay or otherwise hide our differences. They also leave out people with a range of disabilities who may not be able to otherwise perform or conform in ways that society rewards. So I viewed belonging as a sort of in-group manipulation tactic designed to make marginalized groups conform or seek the supposed benefits conferred upon those who conform to dominant or established norms. Then, recently, something happened that made me realize that the concept of belonging may be more nuanced than I initially thought it was and that its potential weaponry may not be, always be wielded in the same ways. A few months ago, I and two of my colleagues from Brooklyn Law School's Disability and Civil Rights Clinic were in the process of planning a two-day symposium to be co-hosted by both of our schools. My co-hosts and I, all women, all women and attorneys who teach and litigate in areas involving disability, named the symposium Reclaiming Disability Justice. The idea for the symposium was inspired by a critique that the concept of disability justice, as opposed to disability rights, has been appropriated or co-opted by lawyers and by academics. Created by disabled artists and activists like Patty Byrne, I'm gonna give the interpreters a moment to switch, Patty Byrne, Sins Invalid, Leroy Moore, Mia Mingus, and others in the early 2000s, disability justice is a movement created by and for disabled people of color, queer and trans disabled people, and other disabled people with multi-marginalized identities to address the ways that the more mainstream disability rights movement of the 1970s left out or overlooked their experiences. As disabled author, author Leah Lakshmi Semaracina explained in their book, Care Work, Dreaming Disability Justice, quote, to me, disability justice means a political movement and many interlocking communities where disability is not defined in white terms or male terms or straight terms. Disability justice is to the disability rights movement what the environmental justice movement is to the mainstream environmental movement, end quote. Proponents of disability justice have criticized the co-optation of the language of disability justice without changes or, practice, or practices that benefit the people for whom and by which disability justice was created. Disability justice isn't just a more diverse form of disability rights. As one of the founding organizations of the disability justice movement, Sins Invalid, stated in its disability justice primer, Skin, Tooth, and Bone, in recent years, on websites, on flyers, and in informal conversations, we've witnessed people add the word justice onto everything disability related, from disability services to advocacy to disability studies. This is done without a significant shift in process or goals, as if adding the word justice brings work into alignment with disability justice. It doesn't. Disability justice is a framework that has 10 principles, including intersectionality, leadership of those most impacted, anti-capitalist politics, cross-movement solidarity, recognizing wholeness, sustainability, commitment to cross-disability solidarity, interdependence, 
collective access, and collective liberation. Nevertheless, some disability rights advocates, scholars, and organizations aware of the criticisms of the whiteness of disability spaces have used the phrases disability rights and disability justice either interchangeably or together, perhaps in an attempt to at least acknowledge the criticisms and existence of disabled people of color. In naming my own recently launched clinic, the Civil Rights and Disability Justice Clinic, I hope to signify a few things. One, that we did the type of racial and social justice work that many people might traditionally recognize as civil rights. Two, that disability and ableism are issues and structures that affect every other social justice issue and aspect of life. And three, that we were especially committed to working with, studying, and advocating for disabled people of color. My experience as a disabled civil rights attorney, despite my assumption in law school that civil rights would necessarily include disability, I had never officially litigated a case under the Americans with Disabilities Act or the ADA until my last few years in practice. That experience, the experience taught me how siloed the fields of civil rights and disability rights were. In traditional civil rights practice, I was constantly the person saying, and people with disabilities, and in disability rights spaces, I was often the person trying to emphasize the relationship between racism and ableism and trying to push for a broader interpretation of disability work. Thus, a major part of my reason for transitioning into clinical legal academia was to have a space where I could do both types of work in the sense that the legal profession and society sees and practices civil and disability rights work separately. I also wanted to bring the fields together. I was hired to teach a civil rights clinic that I had the creative freedom to shape and interpret however I wanted. However, I knew if I just called it the civil rights clinic, read race, many disability groups wouldn't necessarily think I did the work that concerned them and that by including the word disability, I would also be altering and perhaps limiting the nature of the social justice work that civil rights attorneys thought we did. So I chose disability justice to indicate my desire to do both, and particularly disability work with a racialized lens. I understood that as a lawyer and as someone whose job it was to teach other people to be lawyers, the nature of the work I did would be considered disability rights to many people, including to disability justice advocates who challenged the notion that the law has a place in disability justice. However, the question of whether it does was one of the things we wanted to discuss at the symposium. With that in mind, the goal of the Reclaiming Disability Justice Symposium was to directly address the question of the appropriation of disability justice and, dis and to discuss first whether, and then if so, how, lawyers and academics can better support the movement's goals. We had panels defining disability justice, discussing disability justice in carceral spaces, disability justice, sexual freedom, and the right to family, disability justice and environmental justice, and how to actually apply disability justice principles in our work. Of the three primary co-organizers of the symposium, one of the co-organizers was white, and at least as far as I know, I was the only one of the co-organizers who either identified as or was visibly disabled. 
We openly acknowledged the irony of our own status as lawyers and academics, and literally both as clinical law professors, discussing the appropriation of the movement disability justice organizers alleged that our fields had appropriated. However, as lawyers and academics, we wanted to use the available platforms we had to call our fields to task. We also deliberately worked to ensure that the majority of each of our five panels were filled with disabled people of color, the true quote unquote experts of disability justice, and not just professors and other traditional scholars who often fill the programs at academic symposia. While many, if not most people, were supportive of and excited about the symposium, some people were not. In particular, one of the founders of Disability Justice, who rejected our invitation to participate in the symposium, was very vocal online about their disapproval of the event, including actively posting in opposition to it whenever we attempted to advertise it. They criticized the grant funding that my clinic received and characterized the event, which had not even occurred yet, as yet another co-optation of disability justice. Since this person, a black disabled person, didn't post about any of the grants my co-organizers have received for their work, it also seemed pretty safe to assume that their issue was with me, the sole black and disabled member of the planning committee. The event ultimately went very well, and we got great feedback from both participants and attendees. However, the pre-conference controversy stayed with me. I realized that although I had prided myself on not being someone who sought validation or belonging from people or structures I thought were designed to reject me, I had sought belonging from the proverbial people, the societal others, from the work and from the movement. Not getting it, even from a relatively small fraction of the movement, was disconcerting to me because that was where I had always felt I truly belonged. That experience led me to want to talk to you about one, social justice, social justice movement and advocacy spaces as cultural spaces, and two, appropriation as a threat to belonging. I'll begin with social justice movement or advocacy spaces as cultural spaces. Before we can effectively assess whether something's been appropriated, we have to first define what appropriation is. Interestingly, most of the definitions I came across had to do with cultural appropriation. Most of them also concerned art. For example, in Cultural Appropriation Without Cultural Essentialism, Rich Hatala Mateis defines the rampant problem of cultural appropriation in the arts as including, one, the, rep the representation of cultural practices or experiences by cultural outsiders, two, the use of artistic styles distinctive of cultural groups by non-members, and three, the procurement or continued possession of cultural objects by non-members of culturally distinct institutions. In the chapter entitled The African Diaspora in the United States, Appropriation and Assimilation, in Danielle Foster Lucier's book, Music on the Move, Foster Lucier defines appropriation as taking something as one's own and notes that appropriation can also mean theft. The author acknowledges the potential impossibility of such a taking happening on fair terms in the midst of social and economic inequality. 
Fossler Lussier distinguishes appropriation from cultural appropriation, which the author explains occurs when a member of a group that holds power takes intellectual property, artifacts, knowledge, or forms of expression from a group of people who have less power. Other definitions of cultural appropriation expound upon the use of this extracted information to include taking the cultural product from the source community and replaying it with different meanings or practices. So the emphasis on culture in these definitions of appropriation raised the question of social justice, movement, or advocacy spaces as cultural spaces for me. Additionally, the emphasis on taking what is not one's own raised the question of who can appropriate a social justice movement or advocacy space. Admittedly, I haven't yet done enough research on the idea of social justice movement or advocacy spaces as cultural spaces. I'm sure I'm not the first person to come to this realization, and I'm actually interested in whether any of you have any source recommendations for me on that point. However, the tendency for most social justice and advocacy work to be born out of inequities, often based on shared marginalized identities or characteristics, might make this idea somewhat of a foregone conclusion. Many people associate apparent shared group identities, experiences of oppression, political ideologies or goals with a greater sense of social cohesion or belonging to a cause. Of course, civil rights movement advocacy spaces could be said to be cultural spaces. By this, I don't even mean that the majority of people in those spaces would likely share the same race, for example. I mean that advocates for certain causes often likely share goals, values, or a way of life in a way that we might define culture more broadly. It's also not surprising to think that people in social justice spaces might share certain practices, rituals, or even language, as we've often seen in the images of the marches during the civil rights movement, or the fact that much of the advocacy spaces were also aligned with religious leaders and customs. The second question, the definitions of appropriation, I explored raise is who can appropriate? I wouldn't be a very good self-proclaimed hashtag baby law professor, continual student of critical race theory, black history or social justice movements if I didn't acknowledge the late Professor Derek Bell, who as I'm sure many of you know is widely considered to be the father of critical race theory and who was also the first black dean of the University of Oregon Law School. The pre-reclaiming disability justice symposium controversy reminded me of an anecdote from Bell's 1991 keynote address at the Clyde Ferguson Lecture at Howard University School of Law turned essay, Racism is Here to Stay, Now What? In the essay, Professor Bell discusses what became a theme in his work, the persistence and permanence of racial inequality, both despite and arguably, arguably because of advances in civil rights law. He also talks about the historical pattern of using the social and economic advancements of some black people to both explain and deny the overall collective progress of black people. He tells the story of a black student who comes to his office asking for the name of the real life inspiration for the fictional character Geneva Crenshaw in his book, And We Are Not Saved. When Bell assures the student that the character was entirely fictional, the student tells him that the character thinks like he does and that he needs to find her so that, they, so that they can lead a racial revolution. The student then tells Bell that as part of that revolution, his first act will be to come back and take Bell down. 
A bewildered Professor Bell tells the student that he would have to pass the offices of several of his white colleagues before he gets to him. And the student responds that the revolution would first have to deal with, quote, all the black tokens in high places. In just my second year in the legal academy, my colleagues and I ultimately threw a successful event that I considered to be practically revolutionary by legal standards, legal academy standards. I know the academy overall is a symbol of elitism and hierarchical oppression. So is the law. However, until we get new ones, these are the spaces we have. In the meantime, I'm a single black disabled woman without a trust fund. I have to eat, have to buy a new scooter that isn't covered by medical insurance, new crutches, and plan to support myself for life. So the way I saw it, our symposium put disabled people of color front and center literally and narratively, and we worked really hard to insist on that. We paid them. We worked with our panelists to shape the discussion. We talked directly and openly about racism, ableism, and how the, the legal profession and the academy perpetuate both. In many ways, we introduced the law school to what accessible events look like by working with captioners and sign language interpreters, both in person and online. Yet, I could not get over essentially being framed as a black disabled token. One of the most jarring aspects of this allegation of appropriation to me was that I am a multi-marginalized disabled person. I'm a member of the group or groups for which disability justice was created. The definitions of appropriation concern taking what was not one's own and non-members of a culture using distinctive styles. So my genuine question became, can I appropriate a movement that was supposedly created for people like me, one to which I think I belong, and am I appropriating it? To be clear, I'm well aware of the black adage, all skin folk ain't kin folk. We all know that just because you share the same race or other marginalized characteristic with a group, does not mean that you share the same political ideology or goals as that group. It does not mean that you desire to contribute to the collective liberation of that group. However, I've made fighting for the collective liberation of oppressed groups, especially the oppressed groups to which I belong, my life's mission. That's not to say that I'm infallible, or that I aspire to be, or that I am some sort of savior. I don't, and I'm not. The definitions of cultural appropriation I found also discuss the concept in terms, of, in terms of power. That is, someone who has more power taking a form of expression from someone who has less. While I'm reluctant to call the educational and professional adv advancements I've achieved as a black disabled woman power, I can certainly acknowledge my class privilege and by extension, access to certain resources and spaces relative to most disabled people including and especially disabled people of color. The symposium controversy made me wonder if even despite my best intentions, I was a token black disabled person in high places being used as ableist evidence of possibility while disabled people, and especially disabled people with multi-marginalized identities, didn't collectively progress. Notions of belonging may also differ even within the same movement spaces or among members of the same marginalized groups. My own intentions aside, assuming I am or at least try to be kinfolk, 
The symposium controversy also highlighted the fact that people within the same movement spaces often have different views on how to accomplish goals. Sometimes they even have different intermediate goals. For example, in Courage to Dissent, Atlanta and the Long History of the Civil Rights Movement, Professor Tamiko Brown-Nagin discusses tension between the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, or LDF, and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, SNCC, due to their apparent to their different approaches to civil rights advocacy. LDF's strategy of bringing test cases to establish legal precedents did not always coincide with SNCC's preference for public demonstrations with protesters who were willing to stay in jail to generate media and political attention. When SNCC did engage in legal advocacy, they often brought what they called omnibus lawsuits that challenged very different practices at once with the goal of bringing attention to an issue and overwhelming the opposition rather than necessarily winning on precise legal issues or establishing particular legal rules. They also devoted training non-lawyers to challenge legal issues themselves. In addition to different legal approaches, institutionally, SNCC viewed LDF as a more conservative and middle-class institution. In turn, LDF lamented that it viewed SNCC's less than careful approach to complicated issues that could have repercussions for the broader legal and political struggle. Nevertheless, both SNCC and LDF often relied on one another because SNCC needed LDF's financial resources to help its protesters, and LDF often partnered with SNCC members on litigation after their direct actions. The same differences and tensions persist today in social justice spaces. We've seen it presented in the form of a generational gap, as the Black Lives Matter movement is often compared to and pitted against the civil rights movement of the 1960s, AKA Not Your Grandmama's Civil Rights Movement. I often read excerpts of Tamiko Brown-Nagin's account of LDF and SNCC's differences with my students. I use it to introduce them to the concept of movement lawyering, which Len Holt, one of SNCC's attorneys, pioneered. According to Holt, movement lawyering is the idea that attorneys should be like medical support units during war. They should be deployed to provide specific tactics to assist in the heat of, in the heat of battle, taking their direction from those fighting on the ground. Direct legal services, also known as representing individual clients and their needs, versus the type of impact litigation or class action litigation challenging discriminatory policies that I do, versus movement lawyering, is still an ongoing debate in today's legal profession. A few years ago, while responding to a reference check for a former intern of mine, I spoke to a housing attorney who did tenants' rights work. No offense, he said to me, but we do real work here, not the fancy policy stuff you do. I need to know if this student can handle real conflict. You don't think suing police departments presents real conflict? I responded. Like disability justice, the concept of movement lawyering has arguably taken on a life of its own that may or may not be what its, in, what its creators intended. Even Derrick Bell, a former civil rights attorney, had well-known criticisms of impact litigation dictating the strategy and sometimes conflicting with individual clients' goals or wishes. I think most, if not all, social justice lawyers, especially today, 
want to think of themselves as so-called movement lawyers. They don't want to be seen as the, as the shrewd lawyer calling the shots. They want to be seen as community-rooted, community-serving, and community-led advocates. That's a good thing. However, each of those characteristics means different things to different groups and different contexts. When I read Brown Nagin's account of LDF and SNCC's battles with my students, they invariably notice the infighting, if you will, but they also notice that both groups needed the other and that the movement ultimately needed the different contributions of both groups. Focusing solely on precedent setting might have its flaws, but where would we all be without those precedents? Focusing on narrative and political action might be short-sighted short in some instances, but it's also crucial to community empowerment and getting results that actually benefit the communities we represent. Questioning people's commitment, tactics, and belonging can have useful functions in preserving the integrity of a movement, but balancing that with the task of accomplishing the needs and goals of the movement can be a challenge. Appropriation as a threat to belonging is my next topic. The Reclaiming Disability Justice Symposium showed me that one of the challenges in discussing and actually addressing the issue of appropriation in advocacy and or academic settings is that people may not understand what makes appropriation a problem. Particularly in the context of social justice issues, you presumably have to share thoughts, feelings, information, and ideas in order to fix the broader problem. For example, if disability justice exists because disability rights left or leaves out the concerns of multi-marginalized people with disabilities, how do we address those concerns without sharing them with the people who created them, perpetuate them, and presumably should be involved in helping to fix them? Essentially, you cannot keep a movement to yourself if you actually want it to move. That doesn't mean that the people most impacted shouldn't be the ones moving the movement. However, once something is moving, it becomes really difficult to control or to stop it. What becomes of the impacted communities and the underlying issues when that happens? I've been on both sides of that equation. In one of the cases in our own clinic, we're working with a group of my neighbors to challenge National Grid's construction of a frack gas pipeline in communities of color in Brooklyn. We have an ongoing complaint under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that's being investigated by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and the U.S. Department of Transportation's Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration. Although I've always been interested in it, I didn't have a formal background in environmental justice work before this advocacy, and I got involved in it because my mom asked me to, literally. Among other things, one of the biggest challenges of that advocacy is that we're representing communities of color in a rapidly gentrifying Brooklyn. There are larger, mostly white-led environmental groups with greater resources and greater reach that have been involved with different aspects of this fight at different points. They've literally showed up and camped out in parks in our neighborhood, a neighborhood they would not have dared to come to 20 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago. Preserving the, preserving the integrity of this fight and making sure community members are leading has been one of our primary goals, and people don't know what that looks like. They think it means just showing up in our neighborhoods and protesting with us. 
They think it means making sure we get quotes in newspaper articles and our front and center for photo ops. That's what makes them look good and that's what makes them feel better. But the minute people of color start saying, this space isn't for you, get behind us, and we want to dictate the strategy, that becomes a problem. At one point, while planning the Reclaiming Disability Justice Symposium, I questioned whether dominant groups could truly understand the harms of appropriation because they're used to being in control and they're typically not at risk of having things being taken from them. So they look at sharing and the exchange of ideas differently than marginalized or oppressed groups look at it. In Music on the Move, Fossler Lucier summarizes the harms of appropriation as economic exploitation and disrespectful representation. The author defines and outlines the problems with appropriation as profit, misrepresentation, and a threat to authenticity. I'd like to think about what that means in the context of social justice. On the issue of economic exploitation, there's definitely profit associated with social justice work. On the most basic level, there are jobs that are created to address the problems of society. That's lawyers, social workers, diversity, equity, and inclusion officers. There's also external funding supposedly designed to help examine and address these issues. We all know that more often than not, that money doesn't reach the people who are most impacted by these issues. Beyond financial gain, there's also a sort of personal cachet that is often associated with social justice work. Whenever I point out that not everyone who does social justice work or public interest learning in particular actually cares about people, someone asked me why someone would give up much greater financial earnings to do the work. That's easy. Let me pick an answer. One, they're already rich. Two, it makes them feel good. And three, in many ways, it's the only form of celebrity you can attain without having actual talent. How many hedge fund managers are offering analysis on MSNBC? That doesn't mean people are bad people or they don't have good intentions. It just means that they're people. There's also an aspect of legacy at risk with appropriation in movement spaces. While movement lawyering has become a term of art in social justice legal circles, arguably, not as many people are familiar with the work of SNCC and Len Holt as are familiar with the work of Thurgood Marshall and LDF. That's not to say that these individuals or groups appropriated movement lawyering, but rather invariably that those whose tactics or practices follow the more traditionally accepted path tend to remain in the public's mind at the expense of the people on the ground who built the foundation. So I can completely understand the frustration with the appropriation of movements and the frustration that led to the controversy behind the Reclaiming Disability Justice Symposium. But admittedly, I don't quite know how to fix it. It's a catch-22. If you don't share, you risk being unable to address the issues that are affecting you. And if you do, you risk not actually benefiting from the solutions. I would like for there to be a better way for all of us to truly belong to a movement so that actual change can happen. But part of me hopes that's not just the risk of sharing in an inherently unequal society. Thank you. Questions for Brittany Wilson? 
perhaps slightly divergent from your presentation, if you could change one thing about the ADA, what would it be? Um, that's a huge question. I mean, I don't know that there's a specific thing about the law that I would change. I just always say the law, not just the ADA, but every law is a floor and it's not a ceiling. Laws are not self-effectuating. Uh, the ADA obviously is crucial for people with disabilities, but again, in order for people to take advantage of laws, they have to have, they have to know their rights, they have to have access to attorneys, a lot of times they have to have money and resources, so laws are great, but enforcement of laws and actually being able to take advantage of laws are an entirely different apparatus. So I think that's, you know, I'm not so much concerned with the particular ins and outs of the law as it is actually making it something that has a concrete impact in people's lives, especially the most marginalized groups. I really enjoy your lecture today, Thank first you. of all. Um, my question is, when there's a couple of different dynamics, you, you are a civil rights attorney mm -hmm. and you help people and you know, to deal with that aspect. But when it comes to, say, mental health mm -hmm. as a disability, yep. I mean, how hard is that to, if you're enforcing, especially if you're in a big company, a Fortune 500 company, to actually bring forth uh, an issue of a mental disability along with uh, a social kind of, or civil rights thing as well, issue, I guess I would say. Do you mean how difficult is it to disclose this? Yes, how, I mean, how do, would you approach that or do you see that? Because you were just stating that, first of all, you have to have representation. So trying to explain, I, I'll give you a, like, ADHD. Maybe a person has different ways of processing information, mm -hmm. and then they're in a company where they are not given the proper, um, I guess, things to function, um, equal, you know, things that you need, aids mm -hmm. to help you to function in that capacity. And then being a minority as well. Mm -hmm. um, in a lot of large companies, the reason I brought the question is because you usually have like a mentor, somebody who helps you to move through the company successfully. Mm -hmm. But if you don't know how to have that advocate, then how do you approach that? Is that, is that clear? I mean, I don't know that I have a, a recommendation um, for how someone might do that. Um, there are all of our employment spaces, all of our educational spaces, all of our spaces, period, um, are ableist, and especially in that they function on this notion of capability, productivity, all of these things that are wrapped up in a, in a bunch of other isms and stereotypes, right? And so if you're already trying to navigate how a, a, a place of business functions, there are definite risks um, to the one disclosing your disability, especially if you have multi-marginalized identities. I mean, even, you know, as a person of color, if you're like, oh, you know, people think I have to perform this way and now I have this other thing on top of it. Um, Undoubtedly, it's hard to navigate. I'm not sure what your specific 
question for me is, but. I guess it would be how would you approach that issue in order to get the assistance that's needed? Because that is not something, you know, as a African-American person, you don't have that person behind you or that senior manager or somebody that brings you into the company, takes you under their wings, helps to move you ahead, gives you the information that you need. And so if you're not getting that, because that's how you're successful, really, um, if you're not getting that, how do you advocate for yourself? To, um, how would you? I mean, it's hard to sort of give individual advice. Um, every situation is different. I think one of the difficult things about disability is that in order to get an accommodation, school, workplace, et cetera, uh, disclosure is, is required. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that hopefully the company or the entity, what have you, has uh, an ADA coordinator, an HR person that can help a person navigate those systems. I know that that is wishful thinking, especially when it comes to the quality of that. But I think that hopefully we as a society are working to get past some of the stigma associated with these things so that people can get the accommodations that they need to function. And I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. Well, I think so. And it's not just for me personally. I'm just thinking about, you know, with coming forward and uh, having civil right issues, number one. Mm -hmm. When you're in a large company, especially a company that's known, you don't have a lot of African-American representation in the higher levels. Yeah. And then you add to that, if they have any other issues, I would just like to know how do you approach that without sounding like you were giving excuses or whining. And it's not just for me, but it's for people of color or people who have disabilities that have those both things going on at the same time, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I have any more specific recommendations for how to approach it, but, um, you know, reasons are reasons, um, whether or not people frame them in particular ways. I think we just have to work through doing what we need to do in terms of disclosure, requesting what we need, and dealing with whatever stereotypes or associations come with them as, they, as we go through it, because you first want to be able to get what you need. Um, in order to to thrive, um, so I don't know that I have a well, thank you recommendation. For, thank you yeah. so much. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. I really enjoyed the lecture as well, and in particular, there were two concepts that really resonated with me, and I'm um, wondering if. Um, there is an irresolvable conflict between them. So that's my question. So one was the idea of questioning the whole premise of belonging. And then the other was the idea that if you want a movement to move, you have to share it. Mm -hmm. Are there good examples of movements that have been successful that you can think of where um, a sense of belonging was not cultivated or intentionally cultivated as kind of part of the movement? Um, so are, are there, in other words, movements where um, the movement could move with people retaining um, the stra lifelong strategy you identified as saying, you don't need to accept me, who are you? And in particular, I'm wondering in terms of uh, disability justice, how does it work within that movement in terms of cross-disability alliance? Is there a sense of belonging that people work at intentionally 
is there a sense of belonging that arises, or are people able to come together on the movement while maintaining um, the viewpoint that belonging as a premise might not, not be an acceptable one? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll try your second question first on cross-disability solidarity. I think, in general, I'll speak from my own experience, I'm not representative of the entire disability community, that we, the disability community, tends to be as inclusive as possible, hopefully, right? In terms of recognizing the range of disability. I think that's something that we talk about a lot. Um, you know, one of the critiques of disability justice is that disability rights highlighted and in some ways privileged people with physical disabilities. Um, you know, and you know, including people with mental health disabilities, including people who are deaf or hard of hearing, including, you know, the range and the spectrum of, of disabilities. And I think in general, people who are truly about disability justice and cross-movement uh, solidarity are inclusive of the range of disabilities. Of course, like, <laughs> like I showed in this paper, every movement has its disagreements. Every movement has its points of contention. Obviously, disability justice exists because they're tensions, you know, when you cross racial lines and how, who actually gets to lead a movement, taking, taking different people's different identities into consideration. Um, your first question on uh, are there any movements that are doing belonging well, is that, is that the, the gist of it? I mean, I think, I don't know that I can speak to that personally. I think that, the, I really do think that belonging is an individual thing, right? Um, I think that all the movements that I discussed in my talks, civil rights, racial justice, even disability, they're moving despite the tensions. Um, the, the fight is continuing. So I think people cultivate their own sense of, of belonging. And I think that's sort of, obviously I don't have a, like a good, nice, neat conclusion to my own thoughts because it's, it's a tension that's gonna exist. And I sort of had to, for myself, in this experience, um, decide that I, I'm here. <laughs> I'm a disabled person of color. I'm a disabled black woman. I'm, I, I am who you said disability justice is supposed to be for. Um, you know, you might not like the way I'm operating in this space, there's not much I can do about that, right? Like, I'm doing everything that I can to try to be true to what I think the tenets of the movement are. And you have to create a space for yourself. So I think that most movements are like that. There are always going to be people who are like, no, no, we should do it this way. No, no, we should do it that way. And that's why I talked about the Tamika Brown-Nagan piece, because it's like, SNCC needed LDF, LDF needed SNCC, Black Lives Matter needed the Civil Rights Movement, Civil Rights Movement needs the influence of Black Lives, we all need one another. And that's something that I've learned repeatedly in my work as an advocate, is everybody has a different role to play in the struggle. Um, and we hold each other accountable. Like, you need the perspective of like, wait a minute, maybe you should think this through before you go take this approach. And then you need the perspective of maybe you need to change your approach and maybe you need to think this, you know, you need to take this new thing into consideration. And so there's always gonna be that. And I think effective movements figure out how to take those different perspectives into consideration and still keep moving. Hi. 
Hi, thank you for your talk tonight. Um, I'm a clinical professor here yeah. at U of L. clinicians! <laughs> um, I do DV work, and so direct services. Um, I'm kind of wondering what your thoughts are on, I guess, how do you work with law students on these critical skills of understanding the movement and like making that part of their identity as a lawyer? Yeah. Um, how do you, basically, how do you work with law students, teach law students to work with community? More or less. Yeah, and that and that these aren't, you know, kind of the the that understanding, well, the impact of the law on their clients or their goals is really central yeah. to lawyering. Yeah, um, I think that when I was starting this clinic, and the clinic just finished its second year, so brand new hashtag baby law prom. Um, <laughs> I talked to one of my clients, who's also one of my neighbors, in a pipeline fight. And the same way I talked about my own tension with preserving the integrity of our pipeline fight, um, I said to her, um, I want to be respectful about how I bring my students into our space. The same way I'm like defending the community and trying to keep the community front and center against these mostly white-led environmentalists, I got mostly white law students that I'm gonna be bringing into the space. How do I make sure I maintain that, that same respect, that same balance? And I, I was having this conversation with her because in particular, she was saying, man, like, people always wanna study us. You know, she's like, people always send in their students in our community, they do their little reports, they're like, oh, stuff is bad, stuff is bad, and then they did, you know? And I was like, ah, oh. like I didn't want to perpetuate that. Um, and she sent me an article that I wish I remember the name of, she's a social worker, and it was about like social work having the same sort of issues of like studying communities, planting themselves in communities, and I think you just have to make students aware of that. You have to make students aware of how they might be perceived, um, things that they might not take into consideration. And I think I do a lot of it through reading things with them. Um, and a lot of it is also just listening. Um, I say this a lot. I'm like, I'll probably be burned at the clinical stake. I, I really, really, really hate simulations. <laughs> And I know a lot of people use them to like teach interviewing skills and things like that. And the reason I don't like them, a couple reasons. Um, first, they're not real. Like you're never gonna be able to like prep and neatly package and rehearse for interactions like that. And second of all, they require you to sort of prime an actor based on how you think someone in a particular situation is going to behave. And that's rooted in stereotypes and all sorts of other issues. I told someone at a conference not too long ago, I think it was the clinical conference, <laughs> that that's like blackface in real time. And they were like, oh my gosh. But like, I try not to do that with my students. Like, and sometimes they're looking for it because they've been exposed to it in so many other settings. They're like, well, what am I gonna, what should I expect? How should I talk to this person? How should I, and I'm like, how do you talk to anybody else, right? because I don't want to prime them with expectations about certain groups or communities. And so what I try to emphasize is listen to people. People are people. And I think people think, someone asked me at the, at the clinical conference, they were like, 
Or then how do you teach empathy? You know, like they had to be able to walk around in people's shoes. And I was like, do you? You know, do you? I don't know. Like, there are many things in this life that I will never experience. That doesn't mean that I can't trust what someone is telling me about their own feelings or experience. I, one of the reasons I hate simulations, people always talk about this in the disability context. They're like, oh, you know what we're going to do? to improve disability, we're going to put everybody in a wheelchair for a day. We're going to let them see what it feels like. I'm like, no, no. Because first of all, you're never going to have my disability. So you can test it out all you want. It's not going to be real. And second of all, again, that's like a mockery. It's blackface in real time. It's a mockery of somebody else's experience. And I understand the intention behind it. But you want to know what it's like to be disabled? First of all, you may not. Um, and it shouldn't stop you from caring about people with disabilities. Second of all, the most effective thing you can do is listen. You don't have to relate. You just have to trust. So that's a really long-winded answer, but hopefully it helps. No, thanks. I appreciate that. And um, maybe we can continue the conversation at the next conference. Yes! <laughs> Hi. Um, I was, uh, I'm Mark Roberts, and this is Pat Hoover. We're, we're both on the board at our independent living center here in okay, town. Yeah. And I was saying to her before, oh, we just uh, lost somebody in our community. We lost Judy Human a mm -hmm. couple of months ago, who's advocated in a lot of the ways yep. that you were doing. And we, we just lost another friend. I said, oh, he, uh, um, he was in Crip Camp. And you've seen Crip Camp, haven't Neil. you? And she said, no, I haven't seen Crip Camp. Yeah. So I thought I'd just kind of like to bounce off you the statement, like I, I see the disability rights movement as being really able to incorporate people because it's universal and, um, and can be a good platform for advocating for all the subgroups or different people who have a disability. And in that, in that uh, film, the later part of Crip Camp, they do the 504 demonstration yeah. where they sat in it the, in San Francisco for um, 26 days, 27 days, and really forwarded the laws that ch uh, changed. Mm -hmm. And in that uh, sit-in, in the last part of the movie, there's the sit parts of the sit-in where, uh, like, one of the people had a brother who's a Black Panther, so they had yeah. the Black Panthers brought yeah. in food. Mm -hmm. And deaf people were able to communicate when the telephones were shut off. So it just seemed like a really good... Um, uh, view and I, and I want to recommend it. If you haven't seen Crip Camp, it's I really good to understand some of how people can work together and cooperate. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I just wanted to, I didn't have to Definitely seen Crip Camp, yeah, yeah. Um, and I know a lot of people who, um, while they appreciated the, the inclusion of the Black Panthers role in the 504 sit-ins, have a lot more of a story to tell about that and how central they were, not just sort of like people who brought in food, but in terms of like helping to organize the strategy. Um, but it was definitely seen the film and it's definitely a, a good piece of disability rights history. Hi, so a lot of these topics today are pretty new to me. I was just wondering if you have like any specific works or authors that you recommend that touch over some of these topics that you covered today? Sure, um, I have lots of recommendations. <laughs> so I mentioned a couple that I mentioned in the piece, um, Skin, Tooth and Bone by Sins Invalid. Uh, Skin, Tooth and Bone, the basis of the movement is our people. 
is literally the disability justice primer that Sins Invalid put together where they explain what is disability justice, what are its principles, so on and so forth. Um, I recommended Care Work, Dreaming Disability Justice. That's another book. Um, I, a good friend of mine who does amazing disability justice work, Alice Wong, if you haven't read Alice's work, uh, I'm actually in the this essay collection. It's called Disability Visibility, First Person Narratives from the 21st Century. Um, people who've taught me things, uh, T.L. Lewis, um, who is an attorney and organizer. Um, uh, so many people I can tell you to read. Um, huh, I'm like nervous about leaving people out, but even just the non-disability justice books, if you're, if you're interested, um, I could just run down the list of the ones that I mentioned in this article in particular. Yeah. For sure, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you. It was a good talk. How, in your experience, how hard is it in the law schools to have training for black lawyers who want to go into the disability side of law and justice? Do you have any? Um, thing that you've seen in your career and are there movements to you know uh, recruit more black lawyers to do law for disabled people in terms of like with the approach of diversifying disability rights is that what is that the sort of spirit of your question yeah um i mean i think that law schools in general don't do as good a job as they should teaching disability. Uh, my own law school, I've written about this, I've spoken about it, they've gotten much better since I left, thank goodness, but when I was there, there was no class on disability rights. Um, I remember going to our dean of students, and like, hey, like this is a big part of why I wanted to come to law school, where's the class? And he said, oh, we don't have anybody to teach it, you have to find someone to teach it. And I was like, eh, I've got other stuff to do, sorry. So I think that that is, a big issue, um, but I also think it's not so much about, yes, the disability rights spaces need to have broader representation, needs to be more diverse, but I think we need to be teaching about ableism as an overarching system that includes racism, that includes all of the other isms that exist, so that it's not just, oh, let's get more black people or people of color into disability rights, like, I really want students, and students of color in particular, to understand the relationship between all of these systems. If you understand that, like, the system of chattel slavery, which is based on productivity and human productivity, framed race as a disability, as part of its reason for subjugating and enslaving black people, because they said, oh, literally, their melanin is a physical condition. They, they can't perform the same way, or both. It was a double-edged sword. We had extra superpowers that, that enabled us to stay out in the sun longer, but we also were physically frail um, and needed our masters to take care of us and look after us. And you know, it's a behavioral condition. We have, we have to control them, because otherwise, they'll run wild. They're not, they're not quote unquote normal. Like if you understand 
the underpinnings of our history as not just the history of racism, but also a history of ableism, I think that that would naturally attract different people to the field. Because like, I think one of the barriers that I run into, again, and I talk about this when I decided what to name the clinic, is people think that disability is like this super niche area that if they don't know anyone or if they're not disabled or whatever, doesn't apply to them. And I, I sort of want it to be discussed and taught and treated as a system that is part of all the other systems. Yeah. So thank you. Really appreciate thank your you. talk and your insights. Um, I have two questions. Hopefully I'm in there. I guess in there. Um, the first one, when you're talking about the fractionalism amongst movement groups, um, I couldn't help making the connection to interest convergence, um, yeah. but in different pieces. So I'm wondering if you're one, as you're thinking is that that sort of runs all the way down at the risk of there is no such thing as altruism or whatever. Um, Anyway, that was, that was the first one, so. Um, so interest convert, I mean, I think people love to apply, and I think it does in some certain, st some instances apply in across fields and spectrums. I think that's like a normal human response, right? People, things change when a particular group that's affected by an issue decide they wanna change it, that it affects them and they wanna change it. Um, do you think, like is there, I want to make sure I'm understanding your question, is there a particular way that you think it shows up in sort of the factionalism that, that you described um, that I talked about? So specifically you, um, for example, talked about organizations that were normally at, potentially at odds with one another, mm -hmm. similar goals, and occasionally needed to rely on each other's resources. Right. So it's that, the... Is that an example of interest conversion? Correct. I mean, at that level. Is uh, I don't know if I would call it interest convergence as like mutual dependency. I don't know if that's the same thing. I don't know if I would use like the bell interest convergence framing on that because I think that that was like a very specific racial uh, tenant that he was talking about. Like in particular, things change when white people decide <laughs> that it's time for them to change. And I think I would be careful about specifically parsing it out to, to other movements. So like I think it's also a human sort of notion, but I don't want to like separate it from its particular racial context, if that makes sense. Right, no, that makes complete sense. I understand yeah. the, the different pieces of it. I was just the part of the reflection of the comment that uh, um, for the movements to succeed, mm -hmm. they need to move together. Yeah. Um, uh, reflected in that. But, yeah. yeah, thank you. I, I would call that mutual dependency. Mutually, okay, interdependency. Yeah. yeah. Um, this is the second question or um, second idea, I think, thinking about, um, so I am a law professor here. Okay, yeah, Who spends a fair amount of time working, doing field work on equity issues, and I'm very obviously white, um, uh -huh. I mean, uh, don't identify as disabled, um, heterosexual, but essentially you could sort of check off the outside of the privilege wheel mm -hmm. um, for my pieces, and um, often have conversations that your insights are reflective about around, um, it can't be that the people who are the most impacted are the ones that have to carry all the weight of anything, um, of, of making, or responsible for trying to address systems um, mm -hmm. and their failings in them. Um, 
And so I'm posed with a very specific question um, sometimes, like, okay, what do we do uh, in an institution like this um, in terms of staffing up committees to figure out who should address things? Mm -hmm. And there can be an instinct to say, well, we need to get students who are yeah. um, um, essentially identify minority groups or whatever um, on the staff. But then, of course, that's an additional burden on them as they're trying to be law students. Uh -huh. um, so I'm wondering how you, what are your thoughts on reflective pieces around participation? Um, I know you started off with some insights around tokenism, or at least there were some yeah. pieces in that. So I'm just kind of curious as your thoughts on, on how, to, how you approach that. Sort of like balancing Burden the, and idea, voice. the idea of leadership yeah. by those most impacted and making those people tokens or carrying the burden? Um, tough questions. I'm not sure that I have great answers for all of them, but I think like you can, people are capable of deciding when something is too much for them. Um, I understand also that there are external pressures and people might not want to say, I'm not comfortable with this or don't want to do this. I think that if you're making decisions that affect a particular group, you should have people that are members of those groups as part of the decision-making process, right? Um, I think there's a way to do that that is not tokenization, though. And I think that that is actually the tension that I was trying to get at when I talked about even me trying to preserve the integrity of our community's fight versus some of the other groups that are part of it. I think we have a hard time across racial lines, having honest conversations about what it looks like for communities to lead. And I think, I don't, I don't like these terms of like allyship and stuff like that, because I think most of the time that tends to be performative, but I think that there is a role for people to play that isn't necessarily making the decisions. You might have the check to write, you might have you could so much, you could even ask. I think a, a good way to, to, to navigate a lot of these things is how can I be most useful instead of here's what we're doing, right? Um, and I think that is, it's the same sort of thing in, in, in like a, a school setting. If you're addressing an issue that affects people of color, you can ask them, here's what's happening and here are my thoughts around it. I thought you might have a particular expertise or particular feelings about it, you can fill out, you can ask them, is this something that you have thoughts about how you want to address? Is there support that you prefer that I provide? Like have conversations with people about the role that they would like to play and the role that's best suited for you to play, I think. And I think if you find yourself always like, huh, let me find X person, then you're running into potentially the problem of tokenism, and that's when you need to start doing some more soul searching. And I think tokenism comes into play when, you're, when you find those people just so you can say that you have those people, but you don't actually give those people decision-making or strategic authority. That's tokenism. But actually saying, we need you to be represented, or we, th we think you should be represented, here's the, here's the, here are the reins, how can I support you? let me back up, is what people need. Is that? Yeah, thank you. Okay. Hi, Professor.
Wilson. Hi, Sarah. Good to see you again. Yeah. Good to see you. Um, I want to say thank you for coming all the way over here, and I appreciated your talk in our class earlier. So thank you. Um, my question is about <coughs> precedence, mostly. Um, okay. So I'm a pre-law student. Yep, I remember. And um, <coughs> it's just a little disheartening um, looking at especially current precedents with our Supreme Court and histories of precedents, which leave out a lot of um, issues that we want to see an improvement in. Mm -hmm. And you have a special interest and knowledge in two very important fields, which I think go unrecognized. And I was wondering if you see a change in precedents and an actual effect with people, because I think as a pre-law student, you just have a concern that you're working to do something that might not reach real people, it might just end up on paper. Um, so do you see new precedents affecting people in the real world? Yeah, are you thinking like as high up as the Supreme Court? Or just well, I like mean, lower down is, is it affecting people? Is state law enacting change? Is federal law enacting change? Is it? Um, I mean, I think by change, you mean positive change? Or what yeah, I would positive. view as positive change? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I think it depends on the issue, it depends on the court, it depends on, like, the answer is always going to be it depends, but I think like I said in class earlier, I, I'm not someone who's ever going to say that, like, the law itself right. changes things. Like, the law is built on and perpetuates many hierarchies and problems, and we need all the systems, you know, different groups we need the protesters, we need the media, we need the legislators, we need the, like all of the things in tandem to continue to fight for change. Um, so I'm never gonna be the person that says, yes, the court did it, the lawyers did it, ooh, we have solved the problem. That's, nev I'm so that's never gonna be the case, sorry. Um, and I talk about, with my students a lot, uh, Derek Bell, said I'm a Derek Bell, fan, student, but one of my favorite uh, Derek Bell pieces is racial realism. And the reason for that, his thesis there basically, is that racism is never going away. Um, uh, and students a lot, a lot of times struggle with that. A lot of people struggle with it. They're like, ah, this is you know, defeatist. I don't like this. People like to feel like they're going to fix it. We're gonna fix it. We're gonna solve the problem. And Bell's like, eh, like, you're, gonna, you're here to fight against the latest iteration of the problem. And for me, when I discovered that piece, when I read it, it was freeing. Because I was like, oh, I don't have to fix it? OK, cool, because this whole thing was like, you fight against the latest iteration of it. Because if you didn't fight, it would vanquish all of us, right? And somebody fought so that you could be here. And you're going to fight so that somebody else can be here. But it's also realistic, right? So that you're not shocked when you fought against this thing. You've been fighting this case for years and years and years. And then, boom, something else happens. And you fight and you fight and you fight. And then, boom, something else happens. So I think when you sort of start from that premise of, like, yes, this is what it is. And you know that the fight itself has value, I think it, 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 it at least makes me feel better. I understand that it might not make everybody else feel better, and I'll say that and also in response to your thoughts about what, you know, are courts creating change? Courts 
alone are never going to create change. Courts, most of the time, perpetuate problems. But doesn't mean, again, like I said in, this, in these remarks, these are the systems that we have right now, right? So it's our job to understand that about these systems and to continue to fight back and push back against them. Thank you. Yeah. Another student from earlier. Um, I was just wondering, like, to what extent do you think disability as like a concept, the label of being disabled, is socially constructed? Like in the way that we consider like race and yeah. gender to be that kind of thing. Like how does that kind of differ and like what, what are the important nuances there, I guess? Yeah, so it's completely socially constructed, like everything is, right? Um, we, I, I teach in my class, and a lot of people who do disability studies uh, teach different models of disability, theoretical models. And one of them is the medical model of disability, which was the sort of prevailing thought um, for, I'll say, much of the 19th, I'll say, century, um, and that's the idea that the disability itself is an individualized flawed problem. Um, but the social model of disability says, uh, it's not me that's disabled, it's society that disables me. So the most basic example people use to illustrate that a lot of the time is, uh, the problem is not my quote unquote, inability to use the stairs. The problem is the lack of an elevator or a ramp that would allow everyone to access the space. And there are people in the disability space, legal space, who are trying to sort of bridge the gap between both of those models uh, because the fact is, yes, disability exists, so it's not entirely socially constructed. I think the, the connotation of how disability should be treated and what it means is socially constructed, but there are conditions, quote unquote impairments, if you will, that affect people's health um, and ability to do things. But that in and of itself is not a negative thing. The way that society responds to it or treats it is a negative thing. So there are people that are trying to like bridge it's not one or the other. It's not medical model versus social model. They work together. But I think understanding, thinking of it in terms of ways that society affirmatively disables people or limits people with disabilities through its structures and systems is also important as well. There are other models of disability, but those are the, the primary ones that people often discuss. Okay, thank you. I appreciate that answer. Yeah. Isaac. Hi, Isaac. All my students from Raleigh are coming. I love this. Yeah, so uh, kind of related to um, the class uh, from sociology with environmental stuff and uh, stuff. With ADA, it's clear there's a lot of really complicated ideas legally, like um, sort of the, the, the legal system around it is pretty complex, and I'm studying environmental studies, and you see the same thing with environmental law. So. Do you have any insight into like increasing literacy or increasing knowledge about these things? Because it seems to me that like, unless a lot of 
people understand what the law is and what it says and what it doesn't, it's kind of hard for people to like approach a problem or like know that what's happening to them or around them is something that they have legal protection from or should. So how to increase knowledge around people's rights as yeah. people with disabilities? Um, I mean, I think not just in the disability space, but the law period, um, teachings and sort of making the law accessible and clear to everyone is an important tool. I know that uh, in the independent living space, for example, lots of people do trainings around here are your rights in this context, here your, here's how you get this, here's how you get that. I think we need to do that across the legal spectrum. You know, I, I used to say when I was a 1L, I didn't actually do it, shame on me, but like I used to say, I remember my first year, at the end of my first year at law school, I was like, I'm gonna stand on the corner in Brooklyn and I'm gonna teach people torts, you know, like each one, teach one, because people need to understand these, these basic concepts. Maybe I was foreshadowing my career as a law professor, I don't know. But yeah, like people do need to understand their rights. I think there are spaces that do that, um, but I think it needs to be more widespread. I don't just think it's an education problem, though. It also still is, becomes an access problem, because then you know your rights, but you still need people to help you navigate that. Thank you. Yeah. Will you all join me in thanking Brittany Wilson?